welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. Myths and stories are essential tools and guides for creative living in this crazy world, and I want to share some of what I've learned from them with you. Crazy world indeed, isn't it? We might actually say it's insane. Some particular insanity seems to have been unleashed and unfortunately is erupting uh, from the United States. (laughs) I've been trying to formulate a response to the recent presidential elections and the things that have transpired since then. And I find myself of bouncing around between the poles of four different ideas. Now, I want to share these thoughts with you, and we can consider them to be our corners, kind of like the holy mountains of the Navajo that delineate their homeland. These four ideas can be the corners that delineate our space, the space occupied and defined in this program. The first is a comment by James Hillman from his essay, And Huge is Ugly, Zeus and the Titans. Hillman writes, We cannot perceive the loveliness of the world if our senses are numbed by mind-blowing enormities. Now you might recall that the Titanic refers to a kind of crude power, empty displays, it's It's huge, it's gigantic, and abstract. In the United States and other parts of the globe are riding a titanic wave right now. We see that in the power plays and in the destructive ideologies of racism and sexism and bigotry that depend on stereotypes and generalities. There's all of these promises of, you know, the one big gesture that's going to solve every problem. And and how does that feel? Well, Hillman uses the word numbed. And I can relate to that. There's a numbness alongside my outrage about what's going on. Hillman's prescription for that in his essay is that we return to the loveliness of the world, that we get grounded in beauty. And we do that by paying attention to the particularities of things, by practicing discernment, by getting into the nuances of things. So that's idea number one. Idea number two, which I think speaks to what is happening, is this that a primary task of the trickster is to show us the shadow. I've told a lot of stories about tricksters on this program, and I'm always aware of the temptation to rest in the charm, say, of a coyote story when he does us a good turn, when he brings us fire, for example. And we have to remember that he also brings fear. Coyote brought death into the world. You can think of Ishu and his red and black hat, where he goes and he sets the two old friends fighting simply because he can. 
And his point is that their agreement and their love was rather tenuous and easily upset. And then, of course, there's Loki in the Norse mythology. Loki is part of the community of gods, but on occasion he acts as their enemy. He is crafty and malicious. And as the history of the gods unwinds, this ambivalence in Loki as the trickster leads him to grow progressively more unpleasant. And then he is directly responsible for the death of Baldr, the god of light. We may have to revisit the Norse trickster mythologies in the days to come. But the point is that the trickster upsets things, and in upsetting things, he often shows us how fragile those principles that we thought we held dear are. And this hatred and stupidity that's been unleashed on the world, that is a collective cultural shadow. And it's also part of our personal shadows. And that's necessary for transformation. If we want the next new, better thing, then the repressed and the disowned have to be brought into the picture. we got to heal it. we got to work it. We've got to use it. And also remember that positive capabilities and qualities get repressed too. Things that we need that are beautiful are also in this shadow. And some of the things that we see people doing that are really marvelous, um, like this woman starting a, a campaign to go out and paint beautiful images and uplifting messages over racist graffiti in her home city of Fayetteville, Arkansas. Those kinds of things are may also be part of this shadow. Western civilization has become increasingly one-sided. We're forced into an assembly line where everything's a resource, and it's all about economic gain and consumption, literal truth and power. And this reminds me, if we go back to Hillman, who I just invoked, Hillman's notion of the repressed is the beautiful, and I would add the poetic and the humane, the poetic and the humane and the imaginative. So what's going to come out of this shadow isn't just this dark ugliness that we're seeing, but also many other aspects of human nature and humanity that have not been given their proper place in mainstream cultural expression. So what do we do as individuals in our families and communities to resist the numbing, to do our shadow work and be part of the change that we want to see in the world? That takes me to idea number three, which I got from Pima Chodron in her book, When Things Fall Apart. She says that when things fall apart and we're on the verge of we know not what, the test of each of us is to stay on that brink and not concretize. So we're called to be in the uncertainty and the ambiguity. Who knows what's going to happen in the future? Who knows? Who knows what any of this is going to mean? And we're called to excavate our own darkness and to participate in the healing of our society's shadow and to stay in the tension that that produces. 
the tension between our self-image and our desired view of the world and our fantasies of goodness and what's being revealed. In Jungian psychology, which is where this notion of the shadow came from, Jung talked about being in that tension, about resisting the urge to paint everything white or everything black. And he said that what will happen is that a third will emerge. He called it the transcendent function. A third previously unimagined thing, symbol, meaning that can contain both. So somehow or another, we got to stay in the middle. And that gets me to my fourth idea, the fourth thing I've been thinking about, which comes from Joanna Macy. You may be aware of Macy as a deep ecologist and a Buddhist who has been doing a lot of work on despair, on our repressed feelings of despair and hopelessness in the face of large-scale ecological problems, extinction, and suffering. Macy says, Inhabit larger fields of time. Turn to cosmology and mythologies that remind you that there may be a pattern or a direction that, that can't be seen from your limited perspective in time and space. Right now, we don't know the future. We don't know what's coming. We don't know what any of this will signify. And so I link Macy's advice, Inhabit Larger Fields of Time, up with the speech attributed to the Hopi elders, which I love, where they talk about a river. And they describe what's going on as a river. There's a river flowing now very fast, they say. It is so great and fast that there will be those who are afraid. They will try to hold on to the shore. They will feel they are being torn apart and they will suffer greatly. Know that the river has its destination. Know that the river has its destination. That's that faith, the trust that comes from inhabiting larger fields of time. How old is the universe? (laughs) How many billions of years has it taken to unfold? Now the Hopi elders tell us that we need to go into the middle of the river. They say go into the middle of the river. Don't be one of the people who hangs on to the banks. Go into the middle of the river, see who is there with you, and celebrate. So we have to act for the good. We have to act in the best ways that we can without knowing the outcome. And we've got to go with the flow. And that isn't a passive thing. That is making choices. Are we going to swim out to the middle of the river, or are we going to cling? And they say, don't only be grateful, but be joyful. Celebrate. This calls, in my case anyway, for daily encouragement to open and soften my heart and imagination, to look for beauty and humor. And this is not the same as a whitewashing kind of denial or putting on an attitude of optimism. (laughs) Those of you who know me personally know how difficult that would be for me. No, this is about strengthening your resolve to love what you love and to act on its behalf without resentment or aggression. 
as best you can. Now this morning, I received my Rob Bresney horoscope in my email. And I love Rob Bresney. I've been reading his horoscopes for decades. And I want to share a little tidbit that was part of his general introduction to these times for all of us. He noted that there are new words coined all the time. And our language is always expanding with one exception, and that is profanity, curse words. And this, Bresney says, is a problem because he finds the overused classics inadequate for expressing his evolving rage at injustice, bigotry, mass delusion, ignorance, and ugliness. Bresney says that we need sonorous precision. And in that, see, I hear that particularity, the particularity and the nuance I was talking about earlier. He says, how can you purge the cliched ire that dilutes the useful, inspired stuff? One good method is to make fun of it by expressing it bigger than life. Try this. Go alone to a place where it's safe to feel rage. Envision a person or thing you love to hate. Then unleash the following mantra 15 times in the most vulgar tones possible. I love these suggestions. Here we go. You miasmic heap of shaved off cemetery warts. You mangled preen of politicians' tongue scabs. You brackish tripe of experts' ego tinkles. You fragile crap of orphaned tyrants. You demented cluster of fickle weasel vows. You curdled slosh of rotting fracas bond opinions. <laughs> His belief and I, I've experiment, I'm started to experiment with this, and I think he's right, is that if you go for this, with this kind of creativity, you will be able to make fun of it all. And not make fun of it all because it doesn't matter, but make fun of it all because there's something fundamentally absurd here. And if we can see that, we can fight the good fight. We can love as we are called to love. So thank you, Rob. I'm going to continue experimenting with that. Now, what I have been doing to restore feeling, to build my appreciation of nuance, shades of meaning, subtlety, and get into Macy's larger field of time, is to read poetry. And of course, now I'm realizing reading poetry may also help me expand my vocabulary, a la Rob Bresney. So what I want to do is share some of the poems that I have been reading. So just sit back and relax. And um, if you have a poem, if this stimulates in you a desire to share a poem with me that you are finding useful in this time, please do. Please do. I've got about a dozen here. And I'm going to start with one called Eternity by Jason Schinder. Eternity. A poem written 3,000 years ago about a man who walks among horses grazing on a hill under the stars comes to life on a page in a book and the woman reading the poem in her kitchen filled with a gold metallic light finds the experience of living in that moment so vividly described as to make her feel known to another. 
until the woman and the poet share not only their souls, but the exact silence between each word. And every time the poem is read, no matter her situation or her age, this is more or less what happens. I found that poem in a collection by Kim Rosen called Saved by a Poem. And that is also the source of the next one that I want to share with you, which is called Kindness by Naomi Shahib Nye. Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, You must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the threads of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. On that note of kindness, then I've been revisiting one that's titled Quan Yin by Laura Fargus. And this one I found in a book called Poet's Choice, Poems for Everyday Life, selected by Robert Haas. Quan Yin. Of the many Buddhas I love best the girl who will not leave the cycle of pain before anyone else. It is not the captain declining to be saved on the sinking ship, who may just want to ride his shame out of sight. She is at the brink of never being hurt again, but pauses to say, all of us, every blade of grass. She chooses to live in the tumble of souls through time. Perhaps she sees spring in every country, talks quietly with farm women while helping to lay seed. Our hearts are a storm she trembles at. I picture her leaning on a tree or humming or joining the volleyball game on Santa Monica Beach. Her skin shines with sweat. The others may not know how to notice what she does to them. She is not a fish or a bee. It is not pity or thirst. She could go, but here she is. Seem to be on a little bit of a roll with uh, with Buddhists. <laughs> um, 
This next one is called Happiness, and it's from the collection The October Palace, Poems by Jane Hirschfield. And I'm hoping that by sharing the names of these books and these poets with you, it may encourage you to seek them out yourself, because these are some of my favorites. Happiness. I think it was from the animals that St. Francis learned it is possible to cast yourself on the earth's good mercy and live. From the wolf who cast off the deep fierceness of her first heart and crept into the circle of sunlight in full wariness and wolf hunger and was fed and lived. From the birds who came fearless to him until he had no choice but return that courage. Even the least amoeba touched on all sides by the opulent other even the bay-leaned plankton fully immersed in their fate. For what else might happiness be than to be porous, open, rinsed through by the beings and things? Nor could he forget those other companions, the shifting, ethereal, shapeless, hopelessness, desperateness, loneliness, even the fire-tongued anger, For they too waited with the patient lion, the glossy rooster, the drowsy mule, to step out of the tree's protection and come in. In another collection that I love, uh, called 180 More Extraordinary Poems for Every Day, this is an anthology selected by Billy Collins, I like this one by Ron Coturge. It's called Even ornaments of speech are forms of deceit. It's 1667. Reason is everywhere, saving for the future, ordering a small glass of wine. Cause, arm in arm with effect, strolls by in sturdy shoes. Of course, there are those who venture out under cover of darkness to buy a bag of metaphors and even some personification from Italy, primo and uncut. But for the most part, poets like Rodrigo stroll the boulevards in their normal hats. When he thinks of his beloved, he opens his notebook with a flourish. Your lips, he writes, are like lips. (laughs) That's a little pay on to that one-sidedness I was talking about earlier. Now, here's one by Billy Collins himself called Litany. You are the bread and the knife, the crystal goblet and the wine. You are the dew on the morning grass and the burning wheel of the sun. You are the white apron of the baker and the marsh birds suddenly in flight. However, you are not the wind in the orchard, the plums on the counter, or the house of cards, and you are certainly not the pine-scented air. There is just no way that you are the pine-scented air. It is possible that you are the fish under the bridge, maybe even the pigeon on the general's head, but you are not even close to being the field of cornflowers at dusk. And a quick look in the mirror will show that you are neither the boots in the corner nor the boat asleep in its boathouse. It might interest you to know, speaking of the plentiful imagery of the world, that I am the sound of rain on the roof, I also happen to be the shooting star, 
the evening paper blowing down an alley, and the basket of chestnuts on the kitchen table. I am also the moon in the trees, and the blind woman's teacup. But don't worry, I'm not the bread and the knife. You are still the bread and the knife. You will always be the bread and the knife, not to mention the crystal goblet and somehow the wine. That was Billy Collins. Now, here's a little something from Wendell Berry called The Sycamore. In the place that is my own place, whose earth I am shaped in and must bear, there is an old tree growing, a great sycamore that is a wondrous healer of itself. Fences have been tied to it, nails driven into it, hacks and whittles cut in it, the lightning has burned it. There is no year it has flourished in that has not harmed it. There is a hollow in it that is its death, though its living brims whitely at the lip of the darkness and flows outward. Over all of its scars has come the seamless white of the bark. It bears the gnarls of its history healed over. It has risen to a strange perfection in the warp and bending of its long growth. It has gathered all accidents into its purpose. It has become the intention and radiance of its dark fate. It is a fact, sublime, mystical, and unassailable. In all the country there is no other like it. I recognize in it a principle, an indwelling, the same as itself and greater that I would be ruled by. I see that it stands in its place and feeds upon it, and is fed upon, and is native, and maker. That was published in the Selected Poems of Wendell Berry. Here's one untitled by Anna Akhmatova from Women in Praise of the Sacred, edited by Jane Hirschfield. Everything is plundered, betrayed, sold. Death's great black wing scrapes the air. Misery gnaws to the bone. Why, then, do we not despair? By day, from the surrounding woods, cherries blow summer into town. At night, the deep, transparent skies glitter with new galaxies. And the miraculous comes so close to the ruined, dirty houses, something not known to anyone at all, but wild in our breast for centuries. Touching on the mystical takes me to When I Was a Forest by Meister Eckhart back in the 14th century. When I was a forest, when I was the stream, when I was the forest, when I was still the field, when I was every hoof, foot, fin, and wing, when I was the sky itself, no one ever asked me, did I have a purpose? No one ever wondered, was there anything I might need? For there was nothing I could not love. It was when I left all we once were that the agony began, that the fear and questions came, and I wept, I wept, in tears I had never known before. So I returned to the river, I returned to the mountains, I asked for their hand in marriage again, I begged 
I begged to wed every object and creature, and when they accepted, God was ever present in my arms. An old favorite of mine by William Stafford. It's called A Ritual to Read to Each Other. If you don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world, and following the wrong God home, we may miss our star. For there is many a small betrayal in the mind, a shrug that lets the fragile sequence break, sending with shouts the horrible errors of childhood storming out to play through the broken dike. And as elephants parade holding each elephant's tail, but if one wanders, the circus won't find the park. I call it cruel, and maybe the root of all cruelty, to know what occurs, but not recognize the fact. And so I appeal to a voice, to something shadowy, a, a remote, important region in all who talk. Though we could fool each other, we should consider lest the parade of our mutual life get lost in the dark. For it is important that awake people be awake, or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes or no or maybe, should be clear. The darkness around us is deep. And the last one that I want to read today is a short one called I Worried by Mary Oliver. I worried a lot. Will the garden grow? Will the rivers flow in the right direction? Will the earth turn as it was taught? And if not, how shall I correct it? Was I right? Was I wrong? Will I be forgiven? Can I do better? Will I ever be able to sing? Even the sparrows can do it, and I am, well, (laughs) hopeless. Is my eyesight fading, or am I just imagining it? Am I going to get rheumatism, lockjaw, dementia. Finally, I saw that worrying had come to nothing and gave it up and took my old body and went out into the morning and sang. David Levithan said, remember that at any given moment there are a thousand things you can love. This is a call to action. That's it for me, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Feel free to contact me if you have comments about today's program or other poems that I might like. (laughs) I am always in search for new poems. If you find something of value in Myth in the Mojave, please join the Myth in the Mojave community on Bandcamp. For only $5 a month, you have unlimited access to all of the Myth in the Mojave programs archived there, free downloads of everything new I create, and you will play an essential role and making future programs possible. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy mythmaking. May you find much to celebrate and be grateful for as we move together towards this uncertain future. Keep the mystery in your life alive.